Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, welcome back to another all-new X's for Podcast, the show where we take a look at comics, mutants, magic, and marvels week after week through their many monthly titles. I'm Nico, and you guys can catch me snicting along on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Today here on Marvel Fanfare Friday, we're kind of here to stand against Mayor Fisk, but not quite. It's a very Devil's Reign-heavy episode, even though we're not going to be discussing the main miniseries. We're going to be talking about Moon Knight number 9, which follows the events of Devil's Reign Moon Knight, which got shipping delayed. But this issue, while maybe a little out of sequence, is still filled with amazing storytelling, beautiful art, and what we think are some incredible references to some classic elements of horror that shaped a number of us on this team. From there, we're going to talk about an incredible complex of Electra stories, including Daredevil, The Woman Without Fear, as well as Electra Lives Again and Daredevil, The Man Without Fear 1 through 5. But first up, we're going to kick things off with an incredibly thoughtful look at the Moon Knight primer available on Marvel Unlimited by Nathan before we jump into the incredible coverage that the team brings for Moon Knight number 9. And we sure hope you guys like what you hear. And if you like what you hear, don't forget you might even want to follow us over on Twitter at X is for podcast. Hey everybody, this is Nathan. You can find me online at Twitter at Dazzler AOA. And today we are asking ourselves a really important question. Who is Moon Knight? Who is Moon Knight? That is a question that Moon Knight himself might ask from time to time. We are covering the Marvel Infinity Primer Moon Knight. The writer for this is Robbie Thompson. Art is by Jermaine Peralta. Colors are by Rochelle Rosenberg. Letters by VCs Corey Petit. And production by Annie Chang. This beautiful primer gives us some prime examples of who Moon Knight is. The choice of narrator is interesting to me. It's Khonshu, his moon god. So Khonshu is the entity that gave Moon Knight his powers. And if you read Aaron's Avengers run also caused Moon Knight a lot of problems and to lose a lot of friends. So if you're reading Jed McKay's Moon Knight solo series that's going on now, which I am absolutely in love with, Moon Knight has sort of rejected Khonshu as a driving force for him, which has brought him some problems, especially with Hunter's Moon. But in this beautiful Primer comic, you know, we start off with a panel of Mark Spector as a mercenary. He was a scoundrel, a lunatic. He died at the feet of of a statue, which was Kanchu's statue. Mark begged for his life. I spared him. In return, he was granted my powers. He became my champion on Earth. He became a hero. Now we know through Jed McKay's solo series that he became one of the fists of Kanchu. You know, it's something that's very well talked about. He used his powers to fight crime, to find redemption, and it only cost him his mind, which is a really important part of who is the Moon Knight that we get to know and love in our own way. 
you know, Moon Knight is a very flawed character. He is somebody who does have DID, Dissociative Identity Disorder, which is not always portrayed in a very accurate way in the comics. I do have to make that note. But Mark doesn't only fight villains and criminals. Mark fights himself, which is something that I think a lot of us can understand and grasp. The idea of fighting what our mind and the voices in our mind tell us is the truth. Even if it's not as severe as as a disorder as DID, we often fight our self-confidence levels, we fight depression, we fight just all the negative thoughts that our mind tries to turn up and tries to bring to the surface. And that way, you know, a lot of us are all like Moon Knight, fighting against ourselves to try to be that better person, to be that person that we would like to be. Mark, with his multiple personality disorder, has like literal voices in his head, unlike, you know, the voices that a lot of us fight which are a lot quieter, but given time, he has managed to make peace with those voices, which is something that a lot of us have to do in our daily lives to get through. And then this ends, now together we are Moon Knight. So obviously, since this primer, Mark has moved on from Khonshu and is forging his own identity in this amazing Jed McKay series, which I will talk to the moon, I will like sing its praises to the moon. Moon Knight is a character that, until I read this new series I had a hard time grasping you know but the way that he has been personified the way that a lot of his struggles are struggles that so many of us can take to heart and really know how it is who doesn't fight their negative dark sides all the time you know who can't identify with that who can't identify with sometimes that you've gone too far and you wish that you hadn't have gone as far as you had. You know, who can't understand his feeling of regret, his feeling of remorse for letting Kanchu turn him against his friends and try to take over the world? Who can't identify with those feelings, the feelings of loss from friends that we had that, you know, maybe we didn't make the best decisions. Maybe we weren't our best self at that time. That's one of the things that draws me to the character of Moon Knight. And I think that's one of the things that draws a lot of people to the character character of Moon Knight. You know, it's so much different than my misunderstanding of the character is Marvel's attempt to do Batman or, you know, Marvel's attempt to do, you know, whatever weird thing I thought that they were trying to do. With this reconceptualized Moon Knight gets a good intro in this primer here. We are brought to a man who reached his lowest point and is trying to build his life back up from there. And there's so many of us that understand that struggle And there's so many of us who can feel the pain that he feels every day. You know, it's why it's so beautiful that he's building up a support cast because he in the past has stripped away every friend that he had. He's lost everything that he could lose and he's trying to rebuild himself. And I can't think of anything more heroic than that journey in and of itself. Hello and welcome to X's for Podcast, where we read through Marvel's monthly Mutants, Magic, and Marvels. It's me, Steve, and you can find me on Twitter at HowdyDuda, that's H-O-W-D-Y-D-U-D-A, and today I'm joined by my friends. Hello, this is Raven, aka Dame Red Thread. That's right, I've rebranded just a bit, so come over, find me on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok sometimes. Yeah, you just come over, find me, start a conversation, it's all good. Hi everyone, this is Juan Chen, you can find me on Twitter at Lost in Recall, and we're ready to enter 
enter this new phase of Moon Knight. Hey everybody, it's Nathan, and you can find me on Twitter at DesleraAOA, where I am living in a hallway that keeps growing. But yeah, you can find me there, and I will be extolling the virtues of House of Leaves. I mean, Moon Knight. Moon Knight. <laughs> and I hope you survive the experience, unlike poor Mark Spector's trust in people is soon going to. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Yeah, as we've gotten some reference here, I think we're all in agreement, and possibly a lot of the people who've read Moon Knight are in agreement that it seems that Jed McKay has read House of Leaves at one point. <laughs> I really enjoyed how the moment where he's like, it's a maze. No, a labyrinth. I was like, all right, I'm doing this. Let's do it. Where's the Minotaur? Ah, so I need the, the Minotaur in this issue. Yeah, I was just waiting for Sampano to show up, you know? I did on the third page of this issue notice a little footnote, and I followed the number one down to the bottom of page where I saw some credits. This issue is called Stranger. Writer listed as Jed McKay, artist Alessandro Cuccio, color artist Rochelle Rosenberg, and letterer VCs Corey Pettit. How are we feeling about this one? This little spooky haunted house mystery. Like, I'm not mad at it, but felt like I was coming in in the middle of a slightly different story from where I left off. So it feels like there's a missing chapter that would explain kind of how we got here. I mean, there, we are missing a chapter, actually. We are, yeah. Because, uh, <laughs> yeah, Devil's Rain Moon Knight, I think, is coming out next week. Oh, okay. And I think that was supposed to come out be- between Moon Knight 8 and this one. Yeah, so we're definitely feeling a bit weird. Definitely a couple weeks okay, behind. So it's, it, okay, so it wasn't just me, because I'm, I'm like, this feels disconnected. It wasn't bad, but it just didn't feel like it was in the right place. He does make a few yeah, references. A yeah, yeah, I'm just like, yeah. when did he go to prison? I don't, I don't wait, what? <laughs> what? When did he? I, I don't remember him going to prison. Timing-wise, I mean, there's been many delays recently. Mm-hmm. Like Wolverine was delayed, and now Moon Knight, and some Devil's Rain times, I think. So, yeah. It's just, I think, printing issues, which are weird. <laughs> yeah, understatement. If there's one complaint I have about this issue is, yes, that we did need to get the Devil's Rain Moon Knight before this, and maybe even possibly before number eight, just because we're just kind of thrown in, and we're like, oh, hey, this thing's happening over here, and you'll you'll know about it. But, like, I'm like, cool, let me know about it now that I know how they did it <laughs> but like that that's my one complaint about this issue otherwise i'm just like loved it i mean we haven't read it yet it definitely feels like it should have come out before issue eight and in this issue it doesn't feel like it matters to this book or to this issue but it does leave us with a moon knight who suddenly is back from being missing last issue and there's just you know it's a lot of references to another comic just tie-in footnotes and stuff like that but it does feel like lost time which may be appropriate to this kind of story it is a ghost story a haunted house story. Moon Knight walks into a floor that should not be there. A favorite trope of mine. I read a lot of those like sideways stories from Wayside School as a kid. So I love the idea of like a floor mm. that just doesn't work <laughs> on the elevator. In this case, it's the top floor of like a, an apartment building. And as Moon Knight says when he enters it, it's a maze, a labyrinth. Here we see a little bit of like the it's bigger on the inside than on the outside. The dimensions aren't working exactly properly. We're not exactly like watching a documentary video about the dimensions of the house or anything like that. But it's it's definitely close. Nathan, I know you're a huge House of Leaves fan. Did you want to talk some about your parallels between these two? Obviously, with the with the house that's bigger on the inside is is huge on it. The fact that the house, and it never was as much outright said in House of Leaves, but the fact the house has a, like a personality, it has a desire, it has all of these feelings, is definitely something that was really hinted at, even though in House of Leaves, even though it's here, there's a lot of storytelling beats that 
that are very similar. Like even the therapy sessions are almost like a story within a story, which if you've ever read House of Leaves, it's a story within a story within a story within a story. And there's a lot of unreliable narrator going on in that book. And obviously we've got some of those threads going on here. We we don't know if we can really trust, uh, you know, Moon Knight's personalities ever. First <laughs> off, we know that there's, <laughs> we know that there is something going on that Moon Knight is going to have to realize who the traitor in his myth is, which ugh, kills me that it's Tigram. It kills me that it's Tigram. Greer should not be a traitor, but whatever. I mean, she isn't exactly a traitor. She's keeping an eye on him. I don't think that her yeah. friendship is fake, but I think other people's concern for what he might do if he goes off the rails, cough, cough, Khonshu, Avengers. I mean, it's kind of warranted. <laughs> It is a fair concern. There's definitely broken trust there in in the fact that she's you know like spying on her friend and reporting back to other people. Yeah. But yeah, I don't I don't see her as like necessarily like a, a betrayer figure or a mole. Even if like you know I mean T'Challa's always making spies out of people. But that's another story. Yeah, that's Black I mean, she has expressed that she is very much not comfortable doing this. Like she understands yeah. why, but she very much does not like it. One other thing that reminded me of House of Leaves a lot too even though it's like one panel in this book, but when he goes to visit Wong reminds me of towards the end of the book where they were talking to different celebrities about the fake documentary. <laughs> I'm just like, oh, wow, this is, yeah, okay. This has got yeah. some beats from that. There's a lot of other homages to like house horror in here. I mean, the carpet when oh, yeah. the sixth floor is the Shining's carpet from the movie. Mm -hmm. There are what feel to me like numerous references to different horror manga. I mean, I hesitate to say like, oh, this reminds me of Junji Ito because I read a lot of Jujito and only that <laughs> don't want to be that guy but like there's absolutely like some horror manga stylings in the art fingertips trailing along the wall burning red eyes of like these shadowy figures that are like just barely sketched in and inked heavily but there's there's definitely a number of references to like house horror maybe with oh, those yeah. red eyes even like a reference to house the japanese horror movie but there's a lot going on here you mentioned that page where he gets off the elevator but like page six of digital where he's, he's getting off the elevator it is i'm continually amazed by the use of color in this book mm. that scene right there with the like white light glowing from behind moon knight is just so astonishingly colored like it's so beautiful and like fuck yeah i, I just can't say enough about the use of color and art and lettering in this book overall yeah a lot of the sickly greens in this the artwork the coloring the line work it's all been really really gorgeous and seems very very intentional and it tells its own story yeah that giant two-page spread that feels like a maze to read is <laughs> lovingly expressive and like all the wallpapers are different yeah. all the flooring is different in each each panel there's all these skeletons peering up from like behind the walls and under the floorboards i don't know if this is a reference to a specific horror film that i haven't seen or like the catacombs in paris or something but like there's like a moment in that spread where he's just getting some water out of like a faucet and behind him is just like like this creepy like faces skull red skull faces peering from like out of a door frame and like that legitimately creeped me out when i was reading this out later yes yeah, a really really creepy yeah. issue and i just want to echo the thing about colors like throughout the issue the reds and it's like purple haze that we see probably like inside
inside the house. Very mm-hmm. nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, of course, we get to the part where it's no longer a house and there's like an intestine as we find uh, Moon Knight feeling digested as uh-huh. he's being starved and walked through this house for a very, very long time, weakened, and then he just sees these throbbing, pulsing, red, <laughs> raw, organic walls. And it's like, it's very unclear whether this is like a hallucination or not, but it probably isn't. Yeah, which I was telling Steve before we started recording that it reminded me of Sandman, one of the first volume, mm. where Sandman meets John Constantine and they go inside a house and it looks just like this. Ooh, like, okay. In the, uh, the yeah. gross yeah, wall thing? Yeah, in like the uh, organic parts yeah. ripping off the walls. And I just like overall, that's like reminding you of Sandman, this issue, last issue, uh, that amazingly abstract fight with Stained Glass Scarlet. Mm. Like, Jed McKay is is like slowly turning this into like a vertical style book and I'm fucking here for it and did not know I ever needed Moon Knight to like go on the kind of obscure cool like existential hero thing but like I'm fucking here for it. It does feel like that Karen Berger era Vertigo. It does feel very much like a Vertigo comic, but honestly, Moon Knight has been needing this forever. Like, I, <laughs> I read him way back in the day. You know, like, I always wanted kind of more, more of the mysticism, more of the existential. And, you know, while, while Moon Knight has been good for a very long time, like, honestly, this, this version of Moon Knight feels like what I've been honestly waiting for this entire time. So I love the, the slightly mystical, the, the existential existential the we're on the edge of reality here so things are gonna get a little bit weird but maybe not like Stephen strange level weird I, i've been like although we did get a nice little cameo of ben yes, strange. yes yes we did i love one raven were you guessing dr strange appearing in this issue? i didn't see strange appearing but i do love the fact that they brought in wong i think if they had brought in strange that would have really muddled the timeline even more yeah, it was only like a flashback on page 17 where they like show him fighting in the past. Yeah, so. yeah. So, so like, yeah, there was nothing present day. But I do like the fact they brought in, in Wong because it kind of keeps this the timeline straight. But also it lets you know that, yeah, we are on the edge of the magical or the unreal. You're not just reading a beat em up with a mentally ill hero. Yeah, I like seeing Wong in this. Although in combination with this week's Strange, I these are two different, completely different men physically. I I'll have more to say in that in this this strange issue, but <laughs> I just want to briefly go back to what you said about the it feeling like a fill-in issue before we started. This mm-hmm. kind of thing, like this kind of like quiet ghost story and exploration of the spooky that has like more emotional resonance than action is the kind of thing that I think gives longe- longevity to all those old Vertigo comics that we liked so much. And I could probably read mm-hmm. 300 issues of this series if it did things like this every, every once mm-hmm. in a while. Oh God, I think so. I think that calling this a fill-in issue is a massive disservice to what Jed and the rest of the team are doing. It's more like a pause in the action kind of issue where characters sort of meet up and have, a, like Steve said, it's emotional moments, more characterization than action. And I think it's going to be better once like this is over and it's not constant action, action, action. Like we sometimes need character moments to connect with people, and this is a, an issue that really works for that. This is like as close as a Moon Knight comic gets to slice of life. Probably, <laughs> I guess we could call it that. Yeah. This yes. is- Slice of life with uh, dimension warping houses and organs. Right. 
I think you're right. It'll probably fit better altogether. It'll click just a little bit more once Devil's Reign has come out. I think it's just at this point, it feels a little bit like filler, probably because it is mildly out of sync with what it was supposed to be because of the shipping delay. And it kind of broke up what we were reading about previously like two issues ago now which we get a one page mm -hmm. follow-up on with andrea sturman what did you mm -hmm. all feel i want to hear your feelings about andrea sturman in the scene because the last we saw of her being attacked or confronted by zodiac and here she is safe and sound at maybe weeks later because i mean moon knight was in the house for four days and in jail before that so she seems mm -hmm. okay and in this situation it's we we find out that she did not go to the avengers about his disappearance even though he thought she had i mean she seemed suspicious as hell to me yeah I don't know. yeah she does i wasn't yeah like maybe she's working with zodiac yeah, she doesn't seem self-assured. Yeah, and like the question about if Moon Knight is actually doing things to help mm -hmm. people, I don't know, that really jumped out to me in that maybe you need to stop doing this, hink, yeah, like, you know, wink-wink kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. that was really, really, like really weird. Yeah, I think there's, there's definitely more going on. I'm not thinking she's on the Avengers side anymore, which is interesting. I'm thinking maybe she's on the Zodiac side, which I'm kind of like, hmm, interesting possibility. So, like, what's going on here with I don't think she was ever on the Avengers side per se. I think she was very much taking her her therapist duties seriously. And yes, she may have had to like report back to the Avengers. But I don't think she was ever like, oh yeah, I told him the Avengers were right. She seems to actually just be doing her job. But yeah, this when she brings up Soldier and you know what about Zodiac? And are you sure you aren't being betrayed by somebody? Like it just seemed really out of left field for her. Yeah, it definitely feels like Zodiac is leaning on her. And I guess we'll see to the extent of how much of that is willing or how much of that is under duress in upcoming issues. I'm still on the fence about that, personally. Mm. We do see who this house is, and it's the House of Shadows. Are any of you familiar with the House of Shadows? Believe me, there's no reason that you would be. <laughs> uh. No, it has only appeared in, like, I think Strange Tales and, like, a Defender's Annual, maybe? Like, it is ex extremely rare appearances of this house, and every single time it is, like, the same thing, where it's a house that just, like, consumes people. And it gets banished to another dimension repeatedly by Strange, as seen in this issue. Like, this is all the background information that anybody needs on the House of, Sh house of Shadows, but I think it just had a cool enough name, and Jed wanted to make this series turn into something a little bit more arcane instead of mundane. So, like, I mean, now we, we have a new Midnight Mission, and the Midnight Mission is, like, a cool, spooky house that's haunted and alive. From local, I think. So it's sort of like uh, the Marvel version of the House of Mystery from DC and Sandman? That is exactly the thing that my mind leapt to, and I think that this issue uh, kind of like intends to draw that parallel a little bit. But sort of like an evil version. Or... Oh, well, it doesn't seem to even be evil. It just seems to be kind of passive in its nature. Yeah, evil is not the right word. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a hungry house, right? It wants to be lived in, and it's people are afraid to live in it. Well, and well, it, the reason they're afraid to live in it is because it doesn't like to spit people back out per se so they end up starving to death like it provides water it provides you know air and shelter of course but it doesn't have food in it and it it feeds on psyche it feeds on on mental energy so yeah if nobody's living in it it starves so yeah i don't i don't see it as necessarily an evil thing but i i don't think it honestly recognizes how detrimental it can be to the humans that inhabit it because it doesn't want to spit it back out 
I mean, it, it must have some sort of intellect yeah. because Moon Knight can reason mm-hmm. with it and like making an offer and make a deal. So there's some sort of intellect be- behind it. Might not be that big an intellect, but it, there's mm-hmm. something. Yeah, it's certainly alive, and Moon Knight seems to recognize it as as kin. Uh, Moon Knight does a lot of saying, "You and me were the same in this issue," and it kind of was funny <laughs> the second time around. But I I appreciate the compassion and the willingness to reach out to outsiders. I love a house that is sentient. <laughs> like, I would love a house of the sentient. Marvel even has done that already, even in the X-Men line, where Lila Cheney's house has its own consciousness, and it can teleport people across the universe with Lila Cheney's teleportation powers. I mean, hey, look at Krakoa. Yeah. And look at these googly eyes. I mean, these crescent moons that kind of look like googly eyes. Thank you. I totally was like, these are crescent moons. And I was like, no, Steve, not everything is a moon. Sometimes things are just shapes, but no, thank you. You're right. They are crescent moons. (laughs) They are crescent moons. But it's it's done in such a way that they look like the eyes of a house. I'm like, oh my god, they gave the house googly eyes. I mean, Crescent Moon. So, last issue, we were talking about how every time Moon Knight goes out on patrol, there's a Crescent Moon mm-hmm. out, but this time we didn't see any sort of moon in the sky. There are full moons in the sky. I think mostly because he was in it. It's, I think cause it's just an, so much of an inside yeah. the, I mean, like, issue. Yeah, the first yeah I just noticed that. Yeah, it's a full moon on the first page, it looks like, on page two, where it looks like there's a pretty full moon. It oh, like- yeah. Yeah, yeah. One I, I don't know why it just confuses with uh with the buildings. Yeah, but no, you're I mean, right. We don't get to see the, you're right. It is like But going like going back to the house, I think it's very interesting that this issue was resolved when Moon Knight first identifies the house as a living thing. The first thing he realizes is that living things want they want things, right? They want food, they want shelter, other people, or whatever. Right. So how does Moon Knight deal with with the house? It offers it what it wants, and what it wants is to not be unwanted and to be a place for people to live in but i thought that was a very clever way of resolving the problem without resorting to fighting yes and like throwing gadgets around which yeah. speaks to moon knight's actually like his mission really about helping things and helping people and sometimes the people you want you have to help is a house of shadows right yeah sometimes well he saved millions on having to redecorate <laughs> yeah especially with I'm crisis just... in new york right now right all oh, right no but i'm just saying they, they had a blown up completely shattered burned down building and ta-da midnight mission your your building is back your building is back to being good and i'm like dude that's 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 actually kind of brilliant you didn't have to spend millions of dollars and months on repairs you just had you just had a (laughs) shadow entity move in and do it for you Where it goes from the top to shattered window to the bottom with the crescent moon windows. Mm-hmm. I'm like, fuck yeah. Like interior decoration, haunted house style. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now I can't wait for an issue where like Reese and, and everyone else, like every day there's a new office or this wasn't here yesterday. Yeah. Like Dr. Strange's house. Or maybe like a, a gag, like a background gag. Oh. We should have that. Just a random, the house becomes a random guy character in there. Okay. Yeah, I mean, just have the googly eyes here. Right. Or everybody kind of notes, geez, these hallways are super long. <laughs> yeah, or like the house messing with people, like, want to go to a bathroom? There's only no bathrooms. <laughs> Let me just change its location. Yes. Oh, man. But I do like that it opens up the house. If it's a living house that can, like, rearrange itself. It also opens up possibilities for Mark to like hide stuff mm. or protect stuff, 
like Ooh. from attack. Like we see Rutherford winner at the end of the issue, like going inside the house or yes. walking towards the house. And like that would be an interesting defense mechanism. Like make a maze just for the mm-hmm. villain and see what happens. I hope that we get some of that next issue. Yeah, especially since he's walking directly in with the gun. That is not going to go well for him. Like the first poor bastard that literally breaks into this place and pisses off this entity. <laughs> you you could be lost till issue 46. Please, I hope we get issue 46 because, yes, I need issue 46. I need issue 50 of this <laughs> Jen McKay run from the night. Oh my goodness. Uh... <laughs> There are some, I'm sorry, This it, it all just kind of dawned on me. It really warmed me to the idea of this house becoming almost a background character. And so getting to see it and, and what its machinations are going to look like every issue, that's going to be fun. Yeah, it's a nice addition to the weird rotating cast of vampires and ghost houses and moon knights that we got going on here. Cat, cat women. Ghost <laughs> houses, moon knight, and cat women. Oh my. Oh my. I wanted to talk about the art a little bit before we leave, like we always do because i i certainly had a favorite panel in this and it's it's a whole page the the page where the house touches moon knight's mind and then like mm-hmm. some of the most blood curdling lettering i've seen in a long time that like big red yarg across the top of the page and the eyes like the grainy mm. yes for me is that double page spread with a like the mace yes mm-hmm. yeah. that panel in page six where he gets off the elevator just is so other fucking otherworldly when he's getting off at the sixth floor and the lights behind them it's just fucking beautiful i do love what you were talking about steve with the with the beautiful lettering on the eyes page because like that is another fantastic use of coloring and lettering so like holy fuck that is a really 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 good page towards the end on page 20 where the building's broken down and then bam at the bottom of the panel it's just like beautifully redone so i think for me it's that it's the double page splash because it's such skillful use of color to break apart those panels at the top and still connect all of those skeletons and all of those bodies and it was just it was so well done seeing surface level and seeing what lays beneath the surface just masterfully done I I really really enjoyed that yeah I particularly really enjoyed that I thought that was like I don't know there's a lot of old school horror vibes in this and I mean like you know not like not just horror movies but like horror novels it's Halloween-y without necessarily being like graphic or traumatic or like leaving you with a sour stomach. I, I say that and I sound like some kind of really like, Creed. I don't know, like baby horror fan, but like, I like a really fucking scary film, but like this, this is also the, the kind of Halloween-y stuff mm. that I like where it's just like PG horror that is kind of cute and sad and longing. Wait, is it PG horror or is it CM horror? Stop. <laughs> Nobody's going to get that. <laughs> I have one question for you guys. Yeah. So when when Moon Knight's talking to Doctor Sturman, there's this line that he says, "That's why I opened the Midnight Mission to protect people <laughs> and to protect people from what they might mm-hmm. become." What are your thoughts on that? I think he's a little bit grandstanding with that particular line, but that kind of tracks for how Mark Spector tends to protect himself. He either you know he over aggrandizes what he's doing 
doing, what his grand mission is, or he punches things. <laughs> so I, I, I think he's a little bit on edge, possibly from coming back from prison and being in a house with his own thoughts for four days before being literally spit out. So I, I think he might, he might be having a little bit of a old coping mechanism coming back up instead of just being hunky dory, which is understandable. <laughs> I think Mark, just to get over all this whole thing, needs to go read House of Leaves and put on Pose Haunted, and he'll feel a lot better. So, like, I was reading that line, and I think speaks more to the Midnight Mission as a support system mm. for people, and not that people with uh, without support systems do bad things or anything, but people become better pe people when they have support and they have a place to go and they have family and friends and all that. So, I think that's sort of what Mark's getting at. But I, I agree that it's sort of in a grandstand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I for agree with the point about like building a support system like this this house doesn't necessarily have to be a trap for people if people just want to live in it and mark really wants to live in a cool spooky house with magic properties so there's it's a win-win situation and it solves this predation problem you know it's it's very like krakoa i didn't want to like always bring it back to krakoa but this podcast is called extra podcast so we have to mention it like he wants to live <laughs> he and his friends all want to live in this thing that feeds off people's psychic energy that live on it or in it and uh they can come to a mutual agreement it doesn't have to be like a spooky, scary monster thing. Doesn't that like doesn't that uh, scream to just like the like ability of Jed to put this really magnificent cast together? Oh, yeah. So now we've got like you know his support system is his psychiatrist. You know we've got his uh, surly undead vampire. <laughs> we've got keeping a tab on him for the Avengers cat lady friend and now we've got the house that just wants to like kind of feed a little nibble a little have a little nosh on the people that are inside of it I just want to lick know, it I... <laughs> yeah. okay Raven <laughs> I, I do love the the return like this 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 house just not wanting to be alone I, I do love the return of Jed McKay putting the titles of songs about the moon in Moon Knight especially <laughs> one is thematically appropriate yes. Blue Moon he saw that house standing there without a love of its own and he he was gonna move on in that about wraps up our coverage for today any final thoughts uh, I'm missing Dr. Potter, and I can wait to see his reaction to the house. I also miss Dr. Oh, Potter. I bet he's not going to like that. <laughs> yeah, I don't think he would. He's only yeah, been gone they're... for one issue. We're probably going to see him in the next one going, What the fuck, Mark? What the yeah, fight? fuck? It's bad enough you hang out with vampires. <laughs> right? They killed You're me, Mark. building huh. a temple of everything we're not supposed to be doing. Uh, very but Mark, Mark does like to hang out in places that like, like to take stuff from like vampires like to take your blood the house wants to take your life force house Psyche. house just wants Psyche. to eat you like an hors d'oeuvre tiger wants to take <laughs> your yarn <laughs> <laughs> she does <laughs> Hey everybody, Nico here again, and I am so thrilled to be talking about these pieces of art. Daredevil, The Woman Without Fear was certainly an amazing surprise and a very welcome piece of art to the Daredevil world of major event storytelling. Alongside the pieces we're looking at here, including Electra Lives Again and The Man Without Fear 1 through 5, these really represent some core elements highlighting Electra's origin outside of the main Daredevil canon. For those of you who are interested in learning a little bit more about Daredevil as well as Elektra and the bigger picture of how they fit into the Marvel Universe. It's available in a number of Omnibi. That first Omnibi, I know that series contributor Steve has also read 
this wealth of material. Numbers 1 through 41, annual number 1, and a tie-in from Fantastic Four 73, that's available in Volume 1. And it's maybe not the Daredevil you're looking for. A lot of what Daredevil is to many people didn't really come into focus until Frank Miller's time on the series, which is collected in three volumes. Volume 1 has 158 through 161 and 163 through 191. There's a companion which contains his first ever work featuring Daredevil, Peter Parker, the Spectacular Spider-Man 27 and 28, as well as what I think is like one of the best single issues of a comic book ever, Badlands, Daredevil 219, his incredible Born Again story from 226 through 233, as well as Man Without Fear 1 through 5, and the perhaps mostly forgotten Daredevil Love and War. Then there's an Elektra edition, which contains Elektra Assassin, Elektra Lives Again, and a bunch of the stuff from Elektra Saga 1 through 4. And that sort of represents like the core classic stuff that everybody's thinking of when they think about Daredevil and Frank Miller. And those also have a number of bonuses and specials in them. While I do understand that a lot of the 90s stories that came out of Daredevil perhaps aren't remembered as fondly as a lot of the earlier tales, it is certainly shocking to me that and the Sentis, what could be broken down into two omnibus run, has yet to be collected over the years. She's one of the only significant female runs on any Marvel Street-level character, so it's really a shame that this isn't available. It's the book that gave us Typhoid Mary, and that in and of itself makes it a very significant era. She followed up Frank Miller's return on the title in the pages of Born Again. So she sort of took over in the late 230s. She ran until just around the 300s. At that point, DG Chester took over and had a run where, you know, Scotty McDaniel drew the most roided out, jacked, gigantic bodybuilder Daredevil. And as a guy who's like trying to get there, I really respect it, but I don't understand how it's Daredevil, but it's still really attractive art in in a lot of cases. That, of course, has the famous Fall from Grace. And if you're going to try and read that era, I do recommend picking up the epic collections. For instance, the Fall from Grace epic collection, which also includes the Tree of Knowledge, includes some extra pages that were only ever prior in the first edition of the trade So it's kind of exciting that you can get what feels like very lost art there, again, if you know where to look. There was a lot of turnover following the Chichester run with guys like Carl Kiesel doing pages and Fabian Nicieza coming in. But ultimately, the book just sort of ends before it starts back up for volume two, which is in many ways the modern daredevil that everybody associates with the character and its rise to prominence among the grittier Marvel Street level characters, sort of, you know, the the now of it. If you're looking for something a little bit more modern, there's pretty much no core Daredevil that hasn't been collected since Kevin Smith started the second volume of the title back in like 1998. There's the Marvel Knights Omnibus by Joe Quesada, which it's almost hard to talk about. It's like it features issue zero, issue half, issues one through 15, father one through six, and an issue of Marvel Knights Double Shot. And it's, you know, I guess everything Joe Quesada did, you know, good for him. Then there's the much more recognizable Bendis run, which volume one contains 16 through 19, 26 through 50, and 56 through 60. Volume two contains 61 through 81, as well as what if Karen Page had lived and ultimate team up six through eight. I want to point out that some of those gaps in Daredevil there are actually filled in 
in by a trade called The Unusual Suspects. For those of you who are big fans of Echo, this is a big thing to grab because this is how you can get your hands on the Vision Quest arc that comes much later, which is a follow-up to the material available in Marvel Knights by Joe Quesada. So if you are an Echo fan and you're listening, that's a really great way to get that out-of-print story. But Unusual Suspects contains Daredevil Ninja 1 through 3, Daredevil Spider-Man 1 through 4, Spider-Man Daredevil number 1, as well as Daredevil 20 through 25, which is playing to the camera by Bob Gale. Sort of a no-one-really-knows-why-they-broke-up-the-Bendis arc quite that way sort of story. And then the aforementioned David Mack Echo Quest from Daredevil 51 through 55. The Brubaker run runs pretty solidly through its two volumes, 82 through 105, and then 106 to 119. There's an issue 500 in there, plus an annual and Blood of Tarantula. The Tarantula is a really fascinating character that was redeemed into some really great status in the Brubaker run. And then came Daredevil Shadowland, which perhaps was not everyone's favorite period for the character. This contains a number of miniseries, a number of which that we've actually referenced in the last few months, but primarily this is notable for containing Daredevil 501 through 512, as well as Daredevil Dark Reign the List, number one, Shadowland Electra, number one, and a plethora of sort of random minis, but I do want to note that this is where we got that amazing new Power Man. Uh, this was a terrific story, uh, bringing a new character in in a really great way. And the rather lovely Daredevil Reborn, which is a nice sort of midway point between Badlands and Born Again in its own way, and a nice way for Diggle to say goodbye to a run that maybe isn't the most fondly remembered. There's only two more runs that have happened to catch up before the Zdarsky run, which is what led directly into Devil's Reign. That's, of course, Mark Wade and Charles Sewell. The Mark Wade has so many bonuses and so many random things it ties over with, and sometimes the numbering gets almost embarrassing to talk about. The first volume contains 1 through 27, 10.1, Amazing Spider-Man 677, Avenging Spider-Man number 6, and The Punisher number 10, before volume 2 contains 28 through 36, The Indestructible Hulk 9 through 10, another volume of Daredevils 1 through 18, 1.5.1, which used to be Road Warrior 1 through 4, and then also 15.1. Like, it just winds up making your head spin when you try and figure out how to code some of this. Lastly, there's Daredevil by Charles Sewell, one big volume. I was actually really surprised to see this all get thrown into one big volume. I thought for sure this was going to get split into two, but we do see it contain 1 through 28, 595 through 612, as well as annual number one, Daredevil, Punisher, 7th Circle, 1 through 4, and a material from all new, all different point one. I was maybe a little disappointed that War Scrolls, or at least pieces of War Scrolls, didn't make it in here. That was a Sewell project, and it had some really cool uh, afternotes in it, and so that would have been nice to see here, but I get that that's a little bit more War of the Realms than it is anything else. And so that was just kind of a quick rundown in that, you know, X is for podcast. This is where you can find the stuff that you're looking for, especially because not all of it is available on Marvel Unlimited. You might want to look into those and check your LCS, see if they can order them or see if they've got them on the shelf. And until then, we hope you guys enjoy our coverage, taking a look at three very powerful works featuring Elektra and Daredevil and sort of the eternal dual narrative that they're both locked into with one another. We had such an amazing time discussing this, and we hope you guys enjoy listening. We're here to make this show for you three times a week, every week, with Magic Mondays, X-Men X Wednesdays, and Marvel Fanfare Fridays. Every now and then, the shipping offices dictate that we adjust (laughs) our schedule a little bit as they adjust theirs.
theirs. And so we don't always hit those three topics, those three days, but we love bringing you the content that we bring you three times a week, every week. So enjoy this last segment. As always, I am Nico at Nico Action, N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. We hope you guys enjoy. Keep those mutant lights lit, those Cohen gateways open. Stay tuned for some special coverage in Monday's episode, and we'll see ya. Hey everybody, welcome back to Excess for Podcast, a show where we take a look at comics, mutants, magic, and marvels week after week through their many monthly titles. I'm Nico, and you guys can catch me defeating the hand over on Twitter and Instagram at Nico Action. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And I'm TK. You can find me doing gymnastics with all my friends on Twitter and Instagram at xNateXGrayX. And we hope you survive this experience and then don't survive and then get resurrected and then die again and then get resurrected. Like a lot of people in the books we're going to talk about. Truly, we are here to talk about a trifecta of titles that two of them have been a huge part of my life, my whole life, and one of them only recently entered my cultural vernacular. And those works are Daredevil, The Man Without Fear, 1 through 5, by Frank Miller, John Romita Jr., Al Williamson, Christine Scheel, and Joe Rosen. Electra Lives Again by Frank Miller and Lynn Varley, who, just of note, Lynn Varley is the most consistent, most epic collaborator on Frank. Miller's work and she gives all she gives and they were married like like and she's continued to work with him after their marriage ended so like it's really interesting then we're going to take a look at Daredevil Woman Without Fear by Chip Zdarsky Rafael De La Torre Frederico Blee and VC's Clayton Cowles with unforgettable covers by Chris Boccolo could not talk about this series and not mention these fucking perfect covers yeah absolutely I mean I think especially the initial electric Daredevil issue one cover is so perfectly bought and yet different than anything I've ever seen him do. And it's a gorgeous portraiture of Elektra as Daredevil. As the other two issues have come out, particularly this most recent one is really recognizable. It's of Craven the Hunter, but he looks very similar to Bachelor Stephen Strange. And it's he has done his sort of icon- iconographic work on all three of these covers, but coming at it from very different angles. And it's a really special addition to the book. And especially because I feel like we can't talk about these three titles without talking about the definitive artistic voices on each one of them. And it's so funny because, you know, I know Frank Miller wrote Man Without Fear, but it's J.R.J.R. whose stark work on Man Without Fear has defined it for the last 25 years. And it's Frank Miller's love of everybody looking like melting spaghetti that really makes Electra Lives Again the most beautiful comic I have ever read in my entire It's the most beautiful comic I have ever read in my entire life. And like 30% of it is straight up unforgettably Varley's colors on some of those pages like the glass stained mural the contextualization of the sunsets and fire so like I the artists on these three titles are so unforgettable speaking of artists I just want to point out that Rafael de la Torre on Woman Without Fear is not the same person as Roberto de la Torre who drew Daredevil 501 to like 512 and I only want to stress that because so often 
Austin covers just credited as De La Torre. So, you know, or Cowles or Zardsky or Blee, you know, they cut off the first name. It's impossible to talk about Daredevil without talking a little bit about dads. And my dad gave me Daredevil Man Without Fear 1 through 5 when I was like six years old. And it just so imprinted on me, like everything about it. And like, it's hard for me to separate it from my actual childhood. As I grew up and I found the other canon, let me tell you, the first time I read it, I thought Electra Lives Again was the worst, ugliest thing I've ever read. I really was like, what the fuck? Between this and Daredevil Love and War, why has Miller forsaken us? <laughs> and over time, I've come to realize that Electra Lives Again is like one of the most delicate pieces of art in the world. If you blow on it too hard, you fuck it up. And it needs to be respected for its porcelain origami. It's just such a fragile thing. Now, I grew up with those two works. And of course, Woman Without Fear, I read the morning they came out each morning. <laughs> but TK, I would love to know a little bit more about your experience with these works. We've talked a bit about your experience with Electra, but we're talking about core Daredevil mythology. Yeah, I did not have a lot of experience with Daredevil before you and I started talking, except for my most stark Daredevil memory is Man Without Fear on the shelves at the comic book shop that I used to go to when I was, yeah, like six or seven. It was sort of the first time that I really put together like this dude that I see drawing X-Men all the time, John Romita Jr., does other stuff. Like if you read these things, you will see art that you really recognize other places. You will see versions of a person that remind you of versions of another person that you've been following. And while I was really sort of caught up in the mutant milia and wasn't necessarily the most voracious daredevil reader, one of the things that Nico and I talked about when it comes to this series is sort of the way it really taps into the heart of the daredevil mythos. And I feel like seeing Man Without Fear on comic book shelves when I was a kid, I was a little Jewish boy that was noticing somebody else's New Testament or their Bhagavad Gita on their shelf at home and thinking like, that's not my text, but holy, I, holy heck, I can tell that it's like absolutely gorgeous and it means something to them. So you're basically saying that you throw Waldened yourself through Daredevil <laughs> by recognizing the influence of the Bhagavad Gita and knowing that it's not for you. Exactly. My God, we have just transcended transcendentalism straight up into the pages of Hell's Kitchen. That's what you got to do sometimes. I want to talk for a second about a really magical moment that changed my life forever. My dad had a friend who one time he was talking with casually and mentioned me and my love of comics. And the friend was like, oh, I don't know if you know this, but one of my best friends is, works for DC. And she got me a tour of the exclusive archives just before they left. So, you know, I got to hold things that I, I know are worth more than my entire life combined, fi you know, at least financially. And so I wanted to thank her for giving me that opportunity. And I, one of my love languages is shared joy. And when I think about Daredevil Man Without Fear, number one, I think about learning what a comic book is and learning how to read it. And that for me is love. And so I got her a copy of Daredevil, The Man Without Fear, number one. And I presented it to her at a dinner that she and I went to together. And she became real teary. And I said, why the tears? And she said, I'm indirectly responsible for this cover. And I said, well, now I got to know. The red dye used in this Daredevil holofoil cover was only available to Marvel because the X office where Suzanne was editing at the time had approved it for Deadpool number one. Oh. So it was just one of those moments of magical synergy through time that, you know, she couldn't have known that what she was doing had a weird impact on this kid, uh, you know, a hundred miles away. And it's just such a, a beautiful, you know, Suzanne has actually been drawn into the X-Men comics a number of times. 
times. She was drawn in by Jim Lee during the Extinction Agenda. She was the news reporter that was covering Genosha. Oh, yeah. So she's actually had a huge impact on X-Men over the years. And it's just amazing the ways in which, like you said, you existed within the mutant milieu and you stepped outside of it on occasion. It's sort of amazing the way the mutant milieu steps outside of itself on occasion and gives an amazing little gift to the rest of the Marvel Universe, like the unforgettable covers of The Man Without Fear 1 through 5. Which is particularly amusing because those covers are unforgettable. And there are a lot of foil covers in X-Men and Spider-Man mythos, especially, that are forgettable, that didn't do what I think they set out to do and what seems to have happened by coincidence on Daredevil. But that just is, I really think, especially for people our age that saw it being our age and older, that saw it being published and saw it come out on the shelves, those covers were stuck in your head the moment you saw them. They were like movie posters like I'd never seen. Mm -hmm. And speaking of like movie posters that you've never seen, one of the most exciting things for me is when I'm like, oh, so you like Daredevil? Let's talk about the Daredevil story that doesn't fit into canon, right? I live on a site called the Complete Marvel Read Order. It's run by a guy named Travis Starnes who has pulled together thousands of contributors. And when you guys hear me say, well, this goes here, this goes then, this is how I know that this goes in this order. I'm not pushing up my Poindexter glasses. Fandom is. And I'm letting them speak through me like Rose channeling the heart of the TARDIS. And I take your atoms and I divide them. But to the heart of the story here, the CMRO has no proper location for Electra Lives Again. And it's because it's so difficult to rectify this story with canon. And that's something Miller and Varley knew going into creating the project. Note that this book was published by Epic Comics. Anything by Epic is, of course, questionable canon at all times. Epic did handle Electra Assassin, but Electra Assassin is one of those things that kind of transcends genre and medium, and perhaps it shows a whole lot less of Matt Murdock's cock, so it gets to be published by Marvel now. Well, and how perfect for us to talk about this after talking about Black, White, and Blood, which we had similar questions about the canonicity of a lot of the stories, but at the same time, you can't deny the importance to understanding of Electra that it gives you, this story and those stories. Sort of like the the tonal veracity they provide to other stories. Like, you take tone from it. And one of the things they sought to do with Electra Lives Again is, who the fuck knows when it goes? All we can be sure of is that it goes after her purification in 191. But, and you know, the, the Russian roulette issue. It, so it, it has to come after, it has to come after that. But I don't really know that we can say where it goes before or after. I don't know where the fuck Assassin goes. I understand that people say it goes around Born Again. Like, and it does, but it doesn't. Yeah, I mean, other than the fact that everybody in it is so hot. Like, Electra Assassin is one of those things that's, like, so cerebral. It's much like Electra Lives Again. It can kind of go anywhere in time. And Woman Without Fear, for that reason, is such a shocking addition to the Electra universe. We're talking about The Man Without Fear, which seeks to recontextualize Daredevil's origin, you know, down to the fixer having a heart attack from the end of number one. Fuck. In Daredevil number one in 1964, Matt literally said, 
because this like the trash takes itself out when the fixer has a heart attack. Like early Daredevil is real weird, and you know the the fixer's heart attack here is treated with sort of the same emotional dexterity. But you know, other than the grounding elements that very clearly lock us into time frame, how do you feel about Woman Without Fear and its bold take on cementing a pretty big Electra story in a moment in time? I think given what Zadarsky has tried to do in terms of pushing that challenge to Electra of be a hero and really mean it. Don't just do the right thing because we're fighting the forces of evil and you're trying to stop the end of the world or you hate the hand. Be an actual hero that is helping people and step back from moral ambiguity and anti-heroism. That is an in-story challenge that Matt gives to Electra as she becomes Daredevil. And using his story in Man Without Fear as an anchor point and a reflection point for Daredevil, for Electra as Daredevil's journey to becoming a true hero and not just an anti-hero that's on the side of good is such an important way to do things because it reminds us that Daredevil has a mythology that is important because even if somebody else besides Matt Murdock is wearing the Daredevil costume and is doing the Daredevil things, they are going to end up interacting with a lot of the same stuff and how they respond to it and what they do is equally as important. So much of this set of stories is about understanding and examining a mythos. And the mythos of Daredevil comes with such an enormous cast of characters. And it's fascinating the way in which the people that they are surrounded with treat and view Daredevil and Elektra so differently, especially in Woman Without Fear and the way it recontextualizes a lot of the earliest adventures for Elektra. Seeing Stick be a total bastard to Elektra, I don't think that surprises anybody, but seeing her feel defeated by it really surprises me because in my mind, Elektra is unshakable and that humanizing element, it's done in a compelling way. And I feel like, you know, the people around them that react to the ways they are being Daredevil. It also echoes the fact that, like you said earlier, there's really no way to talk about a Daredevil story without Kingpin, without the hand, you know, those are prevalent elements in these stories, even when they're not there. Yeah. And how Daredevil responds to them, there's a core aspect to it at all times. One of the most interesting things that we've seen over the past few years, and this is part of what got me into Daredevil through you, is the complexifying of the antagonism between Kingpin and Daredevil. It is not just, I want to do crime and you're stopping me from doing crime, but that basic idea is at the heart of it. And when we continue to see stories that have that seed, but then grow so much more around it, we get a better understanding of all of these characters. And then when we pull a new character like Elektra, who is tied to all this, into the identity of Daredevil, we start to ask even more questions about what it means to be Daredevil and what it means to oppose Daredevil. And, you know, you brought it back to Kingpin, Wilson Fisk, and, you know, it's, I think it's a mistake to try and consider Daredevil without considering Kingpin. From each other's perspective, I don't think, I don't think Wilson is right. Like, he is my precious Wilson, and, like, I love him more than almost any villain in, like, the entirety of fiction, but I don't think Wilson is right. I think he is a murderous violence monger, and I think he is a hate monger, and I believe he sees himself and Matt as operating in similar but parallel capacities as men of law and means and power who wish to do crime without 
having to answer for it in the name of stopping other crime. And it's a really important power dynamic that I think plays out through these three works with Kingpin as at all times a higher figure. We can associate the Kingpin with the Fixer in issue number one and just sort of say, you know, Fixer dies giving room for Kingpin. Kingpin is behind Larks, the main physical antagonist throughout the latter portion of Man Without Fear. Kingpin is responsible for Bullseye, the being whose resurrection or possible resurrection is the core component of Electra Lives Again. And Wilson is responsible for Craven as well as the entirety of Devil's Reign falling upon Electra in the pages of Woman Without Fear. There's no point at which Wilson is not the shadow man operating the bad guys that are positioned against any version of Daredevil. Yeah, if Daredevil is the god of Hell's Kitchen, if we're talking from a mythological standpoint, there is a way in which you can really situate Kingpin and Elektra as, you can situate the three of them as a triumvirate whose actions and reactions to each other and to outside forces are essentially the entirety of what drives this mythology. We've seen attempts from the designers of the mythology to on occasion try and elevate Bullseye and Wilson to the hand and for my sake it doesn't work. I don't know. I don't want it. I don't want it. I don't even I don't know how I feel about Punisher number one and I just read it. <laughs> so when you put other people in the hand it always makes me very suspicious and you know speaking of Punisher being in the hand I bring that up because there's that drop in at the end of Woman Without Fear which I just need to say to discuss these for a moment you know without getting too far into it Man Without Fear was a project that was conceived as a film for Daredevil written by Frank Miller that did not get produced Frank Miller adapted the product and used J.R.J.R. who was at the time the hot shot artist coming right off of Daredevil with Anna Senti and they were a power team forging forward a new permanent backstory for Matt which really had hasn't been changed too much. You know, Loeb and Sale adjusted it a little bit for yellow, but nothing too considerable. But Electra Lives Again was such a such a fragile piece of porcelain origami that it literally still barely gets collected with anything else. It's hard to find. It's not on Marvel Unlimited. It's a product that takes work to get. But Woman Without Fear is a fucking tie. I mean, it really is. Craven and the new Thunderbolts and references to miniseries that are going on at the time, plus a buy this other book at the end if anything did Zdarsky de la Torre Blee and Cowell's fucking masterpiece of a love song to earlier works a disservice it was certainly making it feel like an event tie-in especially because of the challenge that was laid out that I mentioned before of Electra can you be Daredevil that question is starting to be answered in this book by reconciling that common Daredevil past with Electra's contribution to it and while it is interesting to see that as part of the Devil's Reign event. It does do a bit of a disservice to this monumental occasion in which Electra is finally saying no longer will I straddle good and evil. I will do what this person that I love has asked me to do and take on the side of good. I love that you said about that duality because I have used the word duality to describe Electra a trillion times in the last two weeks and one of the things that really stood out to me is how quickly people often go to diametric opposites to paint Electra in a clear way, which makes the red costume so shocking. She's in white or black, and then there's sort of the red that represents her being trapped in between. Her Daredevil costume is primarily red, and this kind of draws me to the fact that there's a lot of fire and ice throughout these works. 
works. There's a specific quote that struck me as soon as I read Electra say to Daredevil in The Woman Without Fear number one on page six, the world's on fire, the city's on fire. I was like, holy shit, that's a line from Electra Lives Again. And I cracked open my copy and I flew to page 50. It took me a while to find, but I flew to page 50 and sure enough, world's on fire. And I compare it with how many sequences between The Man Without Fear, The Woman Without Fear, and Electra Lives Again, such as the famous car chase sequences in both Without Fears and the cemetery fight sequence in Electra Lives Again, where snow is an element of Electra's sort of stasis, which we saw a lot in Electra Black, White, and Blood. Not to mention that epic final page. How did you feel about this extreme of elements as an as a part of her dichotomy of being torn between multiple worlds? The thing that I noticed is the snow moments are the moments in which Electra gives in or attempts to have Matt give in. But I think what's really interesting is what giving in means. I think there's a very surface reading where, especially in Man Without Fear, you think what's being said is give in to passion and to the fact that, you know, there is no right or wrong. There's just kind of what we can do and what we want to do. Just give into that. And when you look at Electra Lives Again and at Woman Without Fear, giving in is actually much more complex. And in Woman Without Fear, especially, I think what we're really seeing is like give into a higher calling and a more important vocation for yourself. I think in Woman Without Fear, when we see that moment mirrored with her hand mentor, Akka, who is trying to pull something out of her or to torture her in some way, the callback no longer becomes about the moral ambiguity. It becomes about, I actually think there's more for you than just passion and doing what you want because you have the power. I love that you brought up Akka, who, not to be rough on canon, but you know, there's, and I bring it up all the time, but Mark Wade said the gorgeous quote that's since Miller, everybody's done riffs on Miller. Yes. Including Miller. Yeah. And I think that's so true, which means so many writers have come through and touched this canon, adjusted this canon, and Akka is one of the first, oh no, she's a higher up in the hand you never knew about, that I'm like, yes! I think she's an incredible character. And for us to get the parallel of the cliffside and car sequence from Elektra and Matt in Daredevil, The Man Without Fear, number two, roughly pages 29 to 33, and then again to get it with Elektra and Akka, where uh, it starts with Elektra getting in the car, and then it, uh, you know, over the next three or four scenes mixed with flashbacks, comes together with the cliff understanding that Akka is playing multiple roles in fucking with Electra. she was stick but now she's got Electra's edge what is Electra if she's had to give up her edge and you know there's a lot about Akka that I want to unlock as somebody with a lot of daredevil and hand cannon under my belt and I would love to know how she feels to someone with a little less experience but the same drive to understand yeah to me I mean the first thing that I know noted when I read the issue was like, is this somebody that I didn't realize was part of canon? And I thought they did a really good job of leaving new readers with the impression that this is a person that could have been around the whole time. You have characters like, you know, Romulus for Wolverine, where it's like, I don't believe that this guy could have been behind the scenes all the time, and I don't like him. Akka really, for me, is the opposite. She comes in very subtly in a way that's really plausible and she has some unique characteristics that make you interested in knowing what she's about and just how much she has been pulling Electra's strings. I love the idea that 
that she is kind of eternally young in some capacity and shows up looking younger than Electra and then stays looking younger than Electra, but is so much more jaded and deadly. I actually, even though I am sort of on the fence about the connection to Punisher and Punisher taking over the hand, that like post credit sequence in this most recent issue where it is Akka who goes and meets with the Punisher was probably the thing that made me most interested in the book because I feel like if she is there and we can come to understand this admittedly retcon, but I think well retcon piece of the Electra hand mythology and tie it into the growth of it through Punisher, it could be something really compelling and something that will come to pay dividends when we get back to this idea of can Electra be a hero just for the sake of being a hero and not be a morally ambiguous anti-hero that's just fighting the hand. Dude, when you said this is a retcon that works, it made me go, it's a retcon that's an and yet con. Because, <laughs> exactly. And yet it works for me because so much of what you said right there about you wanted to learn more about Akka and her role in the hand, it's what drew you to punish her. You know, my my relationship with Frank Castle is well documented on this show. Um, if Steve Rogers needs to do something that Steve Rogers needs to look the other way for and Wolverine is dead, he can call Punisher. That's fine. Other than that, Punisher's a pain sub and not a whole lot more to me. And I uh, was pulled in to read it by the fact that there was a tip-off at the end of this issue. And it sort of does bring to mind, though, the nature of the duality of the hand and how frequently there is a third interloper. The duality of the hand is best expressed between Matt and Elektra in Daredevil, the woman without fear, and Daredevil, the man without fear, how they're both being sort of drawn in by this shadowy figure. For those who aren't familiar, Stick is talking to Stone. No, I'm not kidding. And it's a pretty cool story, ultimately, when it ties back into Frank Miller's Daredevil. And I think if we see Matt and Electra as both orphaned children rejected by their adoptive parents, the leadership of the chaste and the hand appropriately, because Stick is the chaste, right? And we compare it to the interloping. Akka and Stick go on to play in Daredevil and Matt's lives through the pages of this. There's something really significant about the fact that there is no big deal hand representative in Electra Lives Again. That whole story is sort of like faceless evil coming for our characters. But in The Without Fears, their parentage and the leadership plays a really specific role. I think that's a very interesting observation because Electra Lives Again is the story that really throws us into the middle of their careers and lives or deaths. Um, Man Without Fear is, you know, a retelling of the Daredevil origin story. So of course you're going to need that moment of establishing who was the failed parent for this character. Woman Without Fear is a revisiting of that and a mapping of it onto Elektra. So again, you're going to want to hit those same beats. But in the middle, we find that there's not somebody for them to interact with or reckon with that can be the person that is even an avenue for catharsis. Even if they can't necessarily have it, they could at least chase that particular person and say, hey, you fucked me up. Hey, you made me these promises and then you left me to die. This is the story in which the hand represents a kind of senseless, meaningless evil that they simply have to reckon with and get nothing out of, which is, again, an important part of the Daredevil mythology 
mythology. It is not suffering with meaning at all times. The only meaning that there is for Matt at times is doing the right thing and helping other people. And I'm going to add in strong helping of senseless violence. Daredevil is born of boxing. Daredevil is literally born of pain is what a man exists for. And there is a really compelling thing that we need to consider when Matt loses his somewhat. And this is okay. JRJR draws like one of the hottest Batlin Jacks ever. And when Matt's dad dies, Matt decides he's going to get revenge and lives by a code because his father said live by a code. When Electra's dad dies, Electra says, I have no purpose. I'm going to kill everyone. And I feel like we see it best exemplified on page 13 of Daredevil, the woman without fear, number two, contrasted with Daredevil, the man without fear, number three, page 30. You know, it's clear that Zdarsky, De La Torre, and Blee really wanted to channel the exactitude of that moment by Miller and J.R.J.R. Yeah, you and I spoke about this. I think they do a very good job. The one place where I wouldn't say it fails, but it's just Man Without Fear takes the art to such a new level. This seems nitpicky, but when you really look at both books, it is it is a thing that matters. The way that John Romita Jr. draws Electra in these matching panels from Man Without Fear, and particularly her hair, which is something that we we talked about in Black, White, and Blood. It is so iconic and such a strong image that it stands out completely in the original series in Man Without Fear. And I mean, it is telling a story of its own, of grief and of growth. And when we flash back to the panels in Woman Without Fear, it's not that there's anything wrong with them. It's a gorgeous Electra. It just doesn't have the same weight as the original story does. And that doesn't mean that it's not still a really relevant moment, but it does really speak to the role that art plays when we talk about mythology and iconography. These, This being a visual medium, there are moments that can hit and be taken to the level of mythology when the art perfectly matches the strength of the story. Thank you so much for saying all of that because it gives me the, I guess, the courage and desire to say something I've cut every time I've said it, <laughs> right? As the editor, I get to cut these things and I decide I don't want to talk about that. Growing up, okay, so I sometimes get a little bit of shit for just how, oh, I'm Latino. Oh, Latina. Yo, yo, yeah, how proud I am to be Cuban. Um, You know, growing up, a very white-looking Latino, I was told you're not that thing, right? You don't get to be Latino if you don't look it, if you don't speak Spanish. And I am so proud to be part of the movement now that says any Latino is Latino enough. And I'm so, so proud to be part of that. And it's funny, because when I'm talking about it in my past, I say Latino, but like when I'm talking about it now, and actively I say Latinx. It's just really funny that like, you know, thinking about my past, I talk about it in the in, you know, a, a dated way. But growing up, uh, before I was like, I need to make up for the time I wasn't declaring my pride in my Latino culture, uh, I was very Greek. So very Greek. And I'm still very Greek. You know, you don't get to be Nico without being a little bit Greek. And, you know, uh, Electra's hair, really, it's it's so weird, but I feel so seen. Cause like I had the boy of that. I had that as boy hair. And like it's um it is a very subtle difference that affects me emotionally. So I definitely agree with you. It's so subtle and it's so little, but that hair tells a story. It does. And it's incredibly important with characters who have an ethnic heritage where they might present as white, but they come from cultures that aren't necessarily seen as white or who have 
enough opposition to dominant white culture in America that it's important that they be seen. Kitty's very Jewish presenting hair from the 80s went away for a really long time in the X-Men and it has come back in Marauders and it feels incredibly important because there are times when being very visibly ethnically Jewish is a source of struggle for Jewish people and you know Nico you and I had very similar experiences in terms of I often because my mother was not Jewish Jewish, was sort of told that I was not Jewish and I was rejected from the community. But I sought really to connect with my Jewish heritage for a number of different reasons and found that as often as there were times where people would say, you're not Jewish enough, I would be presented with communities where they would say, like, if this is something that you want, if this is something that you are going to participate in, you are Jewish. And so we do have these touchstone characters that little details. you know. In, in both these cases, I'm just talking about hair. I know it doesn't seem that important. And there are ways in which the story and dialogue can lift, do a lot of the heavy lifting, but the hair matters. The little details about how these characters present and who is going to look at these stories and visually identify with the characters really is important. And it brings me to just about the only point that I want to make that has nothing to do with Woman Without Fear. You know, this whole thing was Woman Without Fear was so fucking crazy good it made us want to go back and read classic daredevil stories that influenced it or that we that we saw could have influenced it and the only other moment that i think really is of note that isn't in zadarsky's interpretation of the characters is how much playing piano is a thing Yes. I am really of the mind that Electra and Matt both believe in sort of this jack of all trades mentality, but they must also be master of all trades. And there is that so fucking famous, I sometimes like lose my breath when I think about those two panels of Electra playing piano on uh, Man Without Fear, issue three, page 11. With the it's, gorgeous round glasses and the high collar dress. It's when you sent me your new glasses, that's actually like <laughs> part of where my head flashed because you're you know, there's beautiful curls, right? And so then we have Matt playing piano in Electra Lives Again in a moment that's a quiet, mournful reflection of the party scene, where as Electra is celebratorily playing piano, surrounded by people, Matt's piano is a dark solitude thinking of the woman he once broke in on doing this. And I I don't think that Woman Without Fear suffers from a lack of piano playing, but you know, guys, if you want to throw us a Electra playing piano anytime, I'm going to try and buy the original art. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it really is. It's such a great moment. And I mean, I think you use the word jack of all trades. And I think for Matt, that is an apt term. And for Electra, I would say Renaissance woman, because it's so clearly she is rich. She has no excuse not to be good at everything because she has had the best education and she better show that off. Whereas for Daredevil, it's you are poor. You better be good at lots of stuff because it's the only way you're going to find opportunities to get ahead. But at the end of the day, that is the two of them coming to the same thing, which is being really good at a lot of stuff for different reasons, but it is the way in which only they in their lives can relate to each other because nobody else really had to do that. It's really a love language between them. And I think, you know, you've got people who can look in on. I I have this thing that people really don't appreciate, but like if you've never read Matt and Natasha together, man, that's a love story. 
Mori. Oh my God. I love them together so much. And I know that's not who they are anymore, but if you get, I, I think you can hear my voice trembling a little bit. <laughs> like if you can get them together, that story really affects me. I love their love, but that's not him and Electra. That'll never be him and Electra. And I really actually do appreciate Electra and Punisher and Electra and Wolverine as romantic interests, but they'll never be Daredevil. And I think in, in sort of that way where only they understand each other, there's a Venn diagram overlap of the joy they experience training that like everybody, if they ever saw the two of them train, would be like, yeah, I'm going to stand on the side or I'm going to get fluids on me. <laughs> and there's a joy shown in their training montages together in Daredevil, The Woman Without Fear, number three, in um, Man Without Fear, number two, roughly pages t- uh, 24 to 28. There's Matt training solo in Electra Lives Again, roughly page 17. Electra training solo in pages 15 to 19 of the first issue of Woman Without Fear. And there's even when they're like focused on a thing, it's the difference between Gene Kelly and Fred Astaire. They were both the best fucking dancers, man, right? Like, I mean, I should Sid Charisse, so shut the fuck up. But, you know, when you had Gene and Fred up there, it's just like, uh, it's it's art, you know? It's, it's music. It's music with feet. And the thing is, when Fred Astaire danced, Fred Astaire made it look like, man, isn't it cool that I dance so good? Look at how hard I work at dancing. I'm an athlete. And when Gene Kelly got up there, it was straight up jizz. The man did it like he was the smoothest satin you've ever seen. He had joy. It was, ooh, there was a performance. There was a light. There was a love. There was a, a, a special shine to it. And I always think I want anyone to do anything the way Gene Kelly danced. Like it was literally the only thing in the world that would ever matter, even if there isn't a smile on their face. That's Electra and Matt training to me. That is that is that moment. And I think perhaps for me, I think Wolverine training is a little bit closer to a Fred Astaire. He's the best there is at what he does and what he does, he does perfunctorily. But I think with Daredevil and Electra, it's art. It is. And I think there is always the opportunity in any given story for them to be pushed to a point where they are challenged. But the moments where you see them training in these stories, this is not about fighting to your last breath and doing everything you can to stop something. This is, again, about the skills that they have developed to be who they are and relishing in the joy of their bodies in motion. And again, speaking a love language that they have both acquired in completely different but convergent ways to say, we have this moment together in which we are entirely physical beings and we are the only other person in our world that can understand how that feels and communicate with the other in that way. And speaking of their communication, I actually, you know, I made a comment about how much Man Without Fear, I continue to realize, has influenced me my whole life. And there is something about the idea of like hot, sexy violence that, you know, we see right away when Electra and Matt destroy the dorm room. She really is a nice girl, Fog. <laughs> and I love that when Electra is talking about it in The Woman Without Fear, she says sex and violence with us. You know, it's always the same thing. And, but there's truly soft, intimate moments, you know, especially with the opening of issue three, where we get sort of a confirmation, you know, and he says, with everything the world that's thrown at us, we've sinned, we've repented, we've sinned again. Of course, he gets real Catholic with it. We've walked through the fires, fire, right, that we've set, but now we're here. Uh, everything we've done has led to now, to this point in time. Uh, how can I be mad at any of it? You know, number one, he does use somewhat victim language, but like that is sort of the nature of their cyclical duality, right? It's either got to be from his perspective or her perspective, and the other one's always going to suffer. One of the major themes of The Man Without Fear is bodies. We constantly see bodies. There is really an abundance of corpses, and 
uh, I think Electra Lives Again might break the record for most number of Marvel corpses and bulge shots in the same issue. But the most fascinating thing about Woman Without Fear is there's nobody. And that creates a compelling moment because even though we know after Man Without Fear, Electra dies, within the context of Man Without Fear, Electra goes off into the night. Within the context of Electra Lives Again, we are once again left unsure her state of alive or dead. In Woman Without Fear, it's Matt. Yeah, and I think the other part of it is, again, I mean, I keep repeating this, but she has been asked to reject moral ambiguity and to stand on the side of good. And I think it's notable that when she does that, we see fewer bodies. There is an important way in which the even most basic thesis is if you kill fewer people, there will be fewer bodies to surround you and you do not have to constantly be associated with death. Because that is a huge element of the Daredevil narrative, whether it's the unfortunate woman who falls from the window of the brothel in Daredevil the Man Without Fear number two, or it's the fact that Daredevil actually doesn't kill Larks. Technically, Matt reflects the bullet with a billy club. So technically, Larks kind of shot himself in the head, I guess. But that's a huge thing. Daredevil in issue two of Man Without Fear is like, no, killing is bad. I wish I hadn't done this. And that's why Stick leaves me. Every time you kill somebody, no one loves you ever again. And then that's why a huge part of Zdarsky's run, being Matt has to surrender himself to the police, never really bugged me. Because that is Matt's character since at least day two. And we have here instead a a chance for Electra not just to have fewer bodies, but to be a body less often. And the first thing she loses to her understanding is Matt. And there's a lot about who Electra is that now that she's potentially lost Matt, are we going to see what we just saw? My dad died, I have to kill everyone. Or are we going to see her uphold Matt's code? It really creates a fascinating way that the woman without fear sort of, if you add Electra lives again somewhere in there, kind of reads like the man without fear some ways in reverse. Yeah, I think that's true. You know, the other thing I want to point out is throughout Woman Without Fear, Electra is working with blunted size. They're her signature weapon, so of course she can't be without them, but they're no longer usable for her to stab people and kill them, which I think is, you know, a really beautiful metaphor. And I mean, functionally, it absolutely works. The thing that we see at the end of this is she goes to a wall and pulls out her blunted sigh and scrapes it against the wall to sharpen it. So we really do have that question of, is she now going back to making more bodies? And yes, in doing so, is she coming ever closer to that edge of being a body herself? And seeing her take out Craven the same way Akka took her out in issue one was a really nice sort of synergy. And I guess, you know, all said and done, I think Electra lives again, pretty perfect. Man Without Fear, pretty perfect. I actually think Woman Without Fear, for the thing it had to be, an event comic, is pretty perfect. I don't know that outside of the upcoming Craven movie and this big push for Craven at Marvel, you know, I've seen Craven go up against Jane Foster and Elektra in the same year, and I still don't get it. Um, that's really like that's that's my one. I wish it could have been Bullseye. I get that it couldn't have been, but it's rough that it was not Bullseye. It's rough that it was just someone. Sort of like the way I think a lot of people feel about Larks in Man Without Fear one through five. He's just someone, and you know he was replaced by the Russian cartel in Daredevil season one because you know the hallway sequence has a lot of parallels 
to the, the hallway sequence. <laughs> so, but yeah, I think I think Craven is just sort of my one. All right. Yeah, I mean, it's not bad. It's just not given how much that we're doing. And again, given how much we're doing in an event tie-in book that is reflecting a very important origin story. This is not a strike against the book, but if I had it my way and if they'd asked me, I would have said, do not marry this to Devil's Reign. Make this its own standalone mini that gives Electra her due. And I think had they done that, it also might have been feasible to have a different villain. He's not a bad villain. It's just, and especially given the fact that we introduce Akka, who really is compelling, there's sort of a, you either need to make me care about Craven in order for this to be heightened to the next level or get rid of Craven and give me more Akka. Yeah, because a lot of pages were spent on Craven, and I wonder if we needed Craven as a distraction. Right. We really couldn't spend time with Wilson because shit's crazy for Wilson over in Devil's Reign, <laughs> which is like, busy. I don't really give out A's like as a rule. I'm really stingy. I'm a really big fan of once you say something is a 100, you don't have anything above that. I share my scores with TK every Wednesday, and I don't think I've given an issue of Devil's Reign below an A-. That's I, correct. I've never in my life reacted to maybe Secret Invasion. Maybe the atmosphere and energy around Secret Invasion I thought was really fucking amazing. I loved that every time I opened a book, it was like, nope, they're a scroll. No, they're not. <laughs> maybe. Can't trust it. Throw it away. Speaking of Electra, you know. Um, yep. But Devil's Reign has just been so exciting. And the storytelling has been spectacular. If I have a concern, it's that due to the nature of the industry, the creative team kind of had to at least semi-spoil some elements of what's coming. But I know that what we're getting is it's worth it. This is as a as a person who spent the better part of the last 36 years saying, but the less you show Electra, the better she is. This is the most we've ever seen her and she's never been better. I, as somebody who's completely new, I agree with that. And I think doing it in this way where Electra is no longer also her superhero or super villain moniker, she has adopted Daredevil and joined Matt on this path. That really is one of the ways in which it's definitely feasible for her to be on screen more and on page more. And having her there is actually really welcome. <laughs> 